If you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to Galatians chapter 5 as we continue our study here. Galatians chapter 5 uh, in the Word of God this evening, proofs of our Christ-likenesses. Now we continue to look at the <clears throat> fruit of the Spirit. So Galatians chapter 5, and we're going to look at verses 22 and 23. Let's open up in a word of prayer, and, uh, and then we'll look at our study this evening. Our gracious and heavenly Father... Lord, I yield this evening to Thee, and uh, Father, I need Your help. Father, all of us that name the name of Christ as our Savior, Father, I pray that You would help us to manifest the fruit of the Spirit, Lord, that we would walk in the Spirit and we'd love You, and Father, there'd be a love, joy, peace, Father, all the things that we need, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, as we'll begin to talk about tonight. Father, these are not things that are natural, but they come as a result of abiding in Christ. Father, I pray that you'd help us tonight to desire to be close to you above anything else that we desire. Lord Jesus, I love you, and I thank you for being our gracious Redeemer. Go before us and guide us in the precious and holy name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. First three spirit, uh, first of uh, Galatians chapter 5, verse 22, would you follow along with me? But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such, there is no law. We've talked about love and agape love. We've talked about joy. We've talked about peace. And those are, the fruit of the, those are all emotional. And the second, next three fruits of the fruit of the Spirit are evidential, long-suffering, gentleness, and uh, then what we're going to deal with tonight, long-suffering is different from patience. Long-suffering is being able, in the face of provocation, someone is provoking you, someone's in your face, and you're able to suffer long in spite of it. Now, patience is that quality that does not succumb to circumstances with your emotions, wherein, uh, you know, something doesn't go, you know, maybe you're doing something at home and it's taking a lot longer, you know, like you're waiting for something and, you know, you're like, oh, this microwave's taking forever to cook my meal, and you're like, ah, oh, you know, and you're getting all mad. Okay, well, that's not patience. Patience is, okay, well, I got to wait the 30 seconds for my food to cook in the microwave. I hate cooking in the microwave. Uh, we didn't even own a microwave for a long time in our marriage. I think it was like seven or eight years until we finally bought a microwave because I hate microwaves, and it's still down in the basement. Anyways, my, not my diatribe against microwaves tonight, but I'm just saying, patience is this, is this idea that... <clears throat> Uh, that quality, you're not surrendering your emotions because something is not exactly going the way you want it. That's patience. Long-suffering deals with a, a relationship issue with someone that's treating you in a harsh fashion, and as a result of treating you harshly, uh, you suffer long, and it takes a long time before you are provoked uh, into that very position of anger and losing uh, of your, uh, you know... Uh, you, you become carnal, right? You don't go to that place. Long-suffering is, as the Lord Jesus Christ is long, as God is long-suffering with us. He doesn't get to carnality. He suffers long, and then he finally gets, okay, it's time for judgment. And God is that way with us, amen? All right, the next one we talked about is gentleness. And uh, it's a usual word for kindness or goodness of heart. Now, there is a difference of gentleness and goodness, and I want to talk about that this evening. This is where we left off uh, last week. And uh, this word... Uh, is characteristically or constitutionally good in itself and beneficial in its effect. 
Uh, it, let's look with me at Matthew chapter 19. It is used to depict the absolute goodness of God, Matthew 19. Matthew chapter 19, verse 17. <clears throat> and he said unto him, Why callest thou me good? This is Jesus speaking. There is none uh, good, but what one that is God. If thou wilt enter into life, keep the commandments. And so here's really the absolute good, absolute very uh, standard of good is God. Uh, it's also used in, abs- in Acts chapter 11. Uh, let's look with me here at another passage of Scripture where this word good or goodness is used. Acts chapter 11, uh, in respect to a man named Barnabas. And um, it says Barnabas was a good man and full of the Holy Ghost, Acts eleven twenty four. So we're going to look at a couple different passages on this, several here in Acts, uh, on this idea of goodness and good. And uh, again, gentleness is a, a very soft way of dealing with this, whereas goodness is a more stern way, but still a proper way of dealing with it, more of a, a, a forthright, a forceful uh, way of doing goodness. Acts chapter 11, verse 24, the Bible tells us, for he was a good man, speaking of Barnabas, and full of the Holy Ghost and of faith, and much people was added to the Lord. Then departed Barnabas uh, to Tarsus for to seek Saul. Now let's, you know, you really find the essential goodness of this man to befriend the Apostle Paul, formerly Saul, in Acts chapter 9, go turn with me back there, just a few chapters, where it mentions the goodness of, of Barnabas. And uh, verse 26 of Acts chapter 9, <clears throat> think about this, no one would want to deal with Saul. Uh, now this is Saul, later the Apostle Paul, but no one's going to want to deal with him because he has been such a fierce uh, persecutor of the Christians. I mean, he, Paul has, uh, Saul has just raged against the believers, raged against these churches and the advancement of the gospel. Uh, Saul was a violent enemy of the gospel. And now he is called, uh, Barnabas is called to go to this man. I mean, the goodness of Barnabas is unbelievable. He manifested a fruit of the Spirit in, in such a way, whereas many people would want to ostracize him because they're remembering who he was, not what God has done. In Acts chapter 9, verse 26, And when Saul was come to Jerusalem, he essayed to join himself to the disciples. But they were all afraid of him, and believed not that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared unto them how he had seen the Lord in the way and that he had spoken to him and how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. So again, the Barnabas says, well, everyone else is afraid of him. I'm willing to risk my own life to go see if this guy is legitimately converted. Is he truly a believer in the Almighty God? Has God done a work in him? And we obviously understand that, that yes, um, Acts chapter 11, verse 21, going back to this uh, chapter 11, we understand that something happened here. The essential bar- uh, goodness of Barnabas would motivate him to go to Antioch, to you know, seek out Saul and bring him to Antioch, to spearhead a revival that was there. Now, in re- this revival, the apostles, Paul, uh, now obviously Saul has been converted, he's accepted Christ, Paul, he is now, I mean, he's going to eclipse, he's going to be, have a much wider audience than Barnabas will ever have. 
But you realize this, it's many times those Barnabases inside churches who are the very individuals that God will use when someone is discouraged and down to pick someone up and help them to go to be all that God wants them to be. But these Barnabases, and, and Barnabas here specifically by name, in Acts chapter 11, verse 21, And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned unto the Lord. Then tidings of these things came into the ears of the church, which was in Jerusalem, and they sent forth Barnabas that he should go as far as Antioch, who, when he was come and had seen the grace of God, was glad, and exhorted them all that with purpose of heart they would cleave unto the Lord. And it says, verse 24, which we read, verse 25, then departed Barnabas to Saul for Tarsus for to seek Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him unto Antioch, and it came to pass that a whole year they assembled themselves with a church and taught much people, and the disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. See, no one wanted to give Saul a chance. They were fearful of him. They understood where he's come from. They understand what a low-life, no-good scoundrel was Saul. I mean, he was a Pharisee of the Pharisee. He was of a hated class of people. And Barnabas said, well, you know, he, I mean, God just worked in Barnabas to go. And Barnabas was there like, hey, Barnabas is one of those guys that just roots for the underdog. I mean, that's really what Barnabas, I mean, you think about it. The goodness uh, in Acts chapter 15, turn with me here. Later on, when, I mean, and then when, when Paul got on board, man, Paul was, I mean, Paul was one of those guys, he got it, and he was all in for Christ, all in. And he couldn't stand anyone that was half-hearted or maybe had stepped back a little. I mean, Paul's like, just get her done, let's go. Come on, let's get those reins and let's just get those horses and get this stagecoach moving. We're not going backwards, we're going to go full tilt. But anyone that was going to slow him down, he's like, hey, get off the train, we're moving forward. Or off the coach, right? Acts chapter 15, verse 37. And Barnabas determined to take with them John, whose surname was Mark, but Paul thought not good to take him with them, who departed from them from Pamphylia and went not with them to the work. And the contention was so sharp between them that they departed asunder one from the other. And so Barnabas took Mark and sailed into Cyprus. Again, here's another word in this idea was thought not good. And Paul was like, I don't want this useless guy. I mean, he's lily-livered. He, he stepped back for a period of time. He stepped back from the ministry. I'm not here for a half-hearted guy. And Barnabas is like, hey, let's restore this guy. Let's get him forward. You know what? God uses all sorts of people. God uses all sorts of people to move things forward. In fact, there was a gentleman, uh, this gentleman, Earl Jessup, he was one of those guys. I mean, he was a mover. He just pushed things forward, and sometimes he was like a bull in a china shop. I mean, he was just, he was gung-ho, and if you're in his way, you're just, you know, you're like, whoa, you can step back. But in this sense, Barnabas is one of those guys that comes along and he says, hey, I want to encourage and let's build up and let's get Mark back in the ministry. Let's get Mark strong. And, and this gentle, you know, he, we have, there is gentleness there, Barnabas, but there's also a goodness which comes from the same family of virtues and uh, kind of kinfolk, if you would. But uh, goodness is more of a sterner type of, uh, you know, sterner stuff. Doing what is good might sometimes be called for a tougher stand. Now, one of the things that we find here 
and the goodness of the Lord Jesus Christ. In Matthew chapter 21, the goodness of the Lord Jesus Christ, his essential goodness, moved him to use vigorous actions in cleansing the temple, turning over the, the tables of the money changers as they were selling items in the temple for their own personal profit and making profit off of God. And so the goodness of Jesus Christ, he went in there, this essential goodness, he says, this ought not to be in God's house. So in, there's gentleness, but goodness is not a weakness. Goodness is, hey, we've got to do what is right for the overall best. What is God's best? What is God's desire? And I want to do that, which is good. And sometimes the good is not always the easy step. And so goodness is a more stern action on this or stern uh, reaction uh, as God leads you. The essential goodness of the Lord caused Lord Jesus Christ to take off the glove, so to speak, when he denounced the scribes and the Pharisees for their hypocrisy, error, and the rejection of them. Matthew chapter 3, 23, excuse me, verses 3 through 7. And uh, Jesus would talk about they bind heavy burdens, grievous to be borne. They're hypocrites. All their works they do to be seen of men. He's, I mean, he's just saying the Pharisees and Sadducees, and for the goodness of those who are there, for the goodness that people do not go down a wrong path, it's a good thing to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, I don't want you to go a bad path. And so in goodness, he, he declares to go away from that which is bad. In, in his goodness, I mean, he preaches, and people might say, well, that's not very gentle. That's not very loving. Well, it is loving, and it is gentle, because he does, he realizes the damage of these of these people that are all about, hey, rabbi, rabbi, priest, or whatever their their title is. They're they're trying to draw people unto themselves. These Pharisees and Sadducees and scribes, and they're going to lead people to hell. And Jesus says, "This is not good." So he speaks up. Greek scholars tend to define gentleness as the kinder and gentler element and the Lord's perfect character as the sterner element. And uh, to be both kind and good is the ideal. You know, it's kind of like a loving parent. Uh, their child asks for something, and the parent very firmly says no. Now, it, they're not being rude. They're just telling the child that is not a good idea. Like a child wants to reach up, and maybe there's something on the stove on one side, but they're reaching up in an area where the burners were just on, and it's very hot, and you're like, no, stop, right? You're doing what's best for that child, and the goodness. And uh, the Apostle Paul would commend, look with me at Romans chapter 15, verse 14. So go from Acts, next, chapter over, next book over, Romans chapter 15. The Apostle Paul would commend the church of Rome for being full of goodness. And I myself also am persuaded of you, my brethren. This is verse 14 of Romans 15, Romans 15, 14. My brethren, that ye also are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, able also to admonish one another. And, uh, and so again, he, he notes them as being full of you know, full of goodness. I mean, they are doing what is the best for the church there. And, uh, you know, Paul also says it'd be difficult for anyone to die for a righteous man, yet peradventure for a good man. This idea of a good man, uh, the word goodness and good man in the Greek are the same derivative of one another, agathos, and uh, some would even dare to die in Romans chapter 5, verse 7. And men like Barnabas and Gaius, I mean, and are kind of men whom other men uh, would die, you know, for whom 
Barnabas, would, I believe, and based upon what we'd seen in his character, he would have died for other men. Barnabas had such a love to see people restored and reconciled to God, he was willing to risk his own life in his goodness and desire to do all that God called him to do. It didn't matter of his own uh, inconvenience, it didn't matter of his own uh, potential uh, life, you know, his, own, his own safety, his own comfort. I mean, to reach out to Saul, a fierce persecutor, and then believe the story that he tells you of being converted, seeing the risen Christ. Now, we can read about it in the safety of where we're at right now and think, oh, wow, way to go, Barnabas. But to really put yourself in the position of someone that was such a violent persecutor and murderer of Christians. I mean, it would be kind of, if you think about it today, it'd be like, you know, some of these world leaders, Xi Jinping or Kim Jong-un or one of these wicked, wicked evil men that have killed Christians and hurt many other peoples and only, and then they accept Christ and then they say, hey, I'd like to come along. And, uh, and you're like, hey, I'll go talk with them. You know, you go over to their country and you're there and you're just, you know, you're taking your life in danger, potentially put in a concentration camp, murdered, killed, tortured, whatever, these things that they've been doing for years. But if God calls you, you go. And Barnabas went. You know, wicked men hate that kind of men too, someone of the goodness of their heart. I mean, real goodness is formidable. Real goodness confronts wickedness as Jesus did on a level that will strike to the very conscience of the wicked. There's a story here of Harold Begbie's case, Histories of Men. In the early days of some exploits in the London slums of giving out the gospel, uh, some believers there who were converted to Christ from hopeless addiction to drink. Begbie tells the story of the plumber. Let me read this for you. The man, the plumber, was well liked by his workmates. Like the rest of them, he was a foul-mouthed thief and drinking man who was always willing to share a dirty joke. But then he was converted. He no longer drank or swore. He no longer stole. He had suddenly become good, not just a goody-goody, but a genuinely good man. His goodness first amused, then irked, and eventually infuriated his former companions. They began a program of systematic persecution designed to make his life such a misery that he would be forced to quit his job. His goodness was impenetrable and incorruptible. They came to hate him with a loathing that almost beggars description just because he was good and they were evil. Perhaps it is this particular quality of genuine goodness for which we long the most, especially as we get older. You know, we can look back over our lives, the things we've spoiled. We would give anything to go back many times and say, I wish I hadn't been in this one particular circumstance. I wish I had not at this particular juncture in life. To have been good, genuinely good, whereas, you know, at that moment you gave in to your lust, you gave in to your temper, you gave in to pride or envy or other things, and you're like, oh, I wish I could go back. The fact is, at the moment, we weren't good. We had not so learned Christ. In a recent edition of a hymn book, the editor changed a second line to read, he died to do us good in this particular hymn. And of course he did die to do us good, but he died for a far greater reason than just good. He died to make us good. Look with me at 2 Corinthians 5, 21. This goodness is that helping to get to the ideal of what God wants. Barnabas stepped out to do the ideal of getting John Mark back into the strength of service, back into being useful for the Lord. 
He reached out to Saul, getting Saul to again be accepted by the brethren and mightily used of God. He saw the ideal of what God could do in a life beyond just the temporary circumstances, just beyond what the history of the individual had been. He realized in 2 Corinthians 5.21, he would understand this truth, 2 Corinthians 5.21, for he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. So Jesus Christ would go to the cross to be made sin for us, to get us to the ideal, to get us to the end goal of being made the righteous in God, that we would be seen as perfect before him. And so in his goodness, one of the fruits of the Spirit is goodness, is the work of the Holy Spirit to make us like Jesus. Wherein our goal is to get that person from their position, wherever they may be, however difficult and struggling and you know, however much of a frustration they be, may be, to get them to the point where they can be more like Jesus. And the goodness of that individual will see to it, how do I get that person from here to here, even at my own inconvenience, even at my own struggles and suffering? I'm, I want to make, I want to get that person there. So goodness is not just a negative quality, a list of other things that we would not do. It is also an active, positive expression of the life of the Lord Jesus in us. Supernatural goodness. It is a work of the Holy Spirit of God. It is an active enemy of all of the works of the flesh. If you were to read in Galatians chapter 5, uh, verses 19 through 21, you'll read about the works of the flesh. You'll see those up there on that sign up there. And so it can only be brought about in us, in our humanity, as we make ourselves available and submit to the Lord Jesus Christ in all of his deity and in complete compliance, submission, Understand his incomparable goodness as we make our lives available to the Holy Spirit of God. We say, listen, I don't care about me. All I care is that I can be used of God. That goodness is going to help you to understand, to see other individuals as you engage them and you interact with them in their particular spiritual growth. They might be uh, maybe fumbling in their faith and your desire is, how do I, uh, sometimes you bear up under, right, in that long suffering, but I want to get them to, to the next step so they can be more like Christ. In my own life, I want to be more like Christ. And Jesus Christ would bear up under tremendous persecution from his own people, from Judas, even his own disciples. I mean, they were all fighting. I want to be seated at your left hand and your right hand. I mean, there were all sorts of different things. And Jesus, he would deal with them appropriately in the position to get them to advance spiritually. And that goodness of the Lord. We're going to come to another fruit here this evening. And these are elemental fruits and uh, the bottom line, really, of our Christian living. But coming back to Galatians chapter 5, gentleness, goodness, faith. This word really can be either act or the attitude of believing trust or else the quality of faithfulness, dependability, and loyalty, as John Phillips writes. And uh, sometimes it's simply the ordinary and everyday faith that every human exercises in a thousand ways. We come, I stand on this, I, I sit in a chair, and I exercise a level of faith that that chair or that pew or whatever is going to hold me up. But <clears throat> faith is woven in the very fabric of our lives. There's no particular virtue in itself. And a faith can be misplaced and result in great disaster. If you put your faith in an individual who is not worthy of faith or not worthy of your trust, 
it will be disastrous. And many people get into relationships and other such things, and they put their faith in an individual only to have it shattered because that person is not who they say they are, or they prove that they're not who they say they are, right? And, uh, but this gift of faith here, you know, an extraordinary capacity to trust God. There's, a, a, there's actually a, a biography I'm listening to right now of a man named George Mueller, Bristol, England. And uh, in faith... He had such a burden for the orphans on the streets. Many of these children, well, they're all fatherless or motherless, and uh, these children were not being well taken care of. He had such a burden that he'd open up a number of orphan houses. As I've been going through his autobiography, I'm on volume two right now. It's an audio book I'm listening to, so as I drive or wherever I'm going, I listen to it, or sometimes in the morning as I'm getting ready. And um, just the idea, he said, you know what, we don't have money. We as a, and, and, you know, it all started with the idea the Lord gave him. He started praying, and then all of a sudden, God just, someone, you know, God gave him money, and then other times, he said, I don't want to ask people for money. I don't want to ask for money. He says, I simply want to know if it's of God, God will provide. And, and there's dark, as I'm going through this book, there's seasons where he's like, we have very little money, but I'm just going to pray because I know that the God in heaven, if he wants me to have this, then he's going to provide for it. I have to say, I'm astounded at the level of faith of a man who simply takes the Bible as it is. Not only is he supporting the orphans, he's supporting mission work, and because people are supporting the mission, you know, the orphans, and they give them money, and he's supporting missionaries, William Carey and others. I mean, God did amazing things, soul saved, worked, but it was all, you know, and as he's there by faith, just praying, he said, God, okay, we're getting low, we can't feed the, we can't feed the orphans, we need your help, and, and sure enough, every day these orphans were provided for, they had clothing, and you know, you know, even once, sometimes people come up to him, hey, I'd like to give you money. There's a story of this woman who wants to give him 500 pounds. Now remember, this is many, many years ago. He, and, and, and this woman is not of well means. He's like, she wants to give him 500 pounds, which is an exorbitant amount of money. And he tells the lady, I don't want your money. Now you're thinking if you're hurting and someone wants to give you money, you're like, okay, I'll take the money. Well, she wants to give him the 500 pounds and he prays about it and prays about it. And, and, he's, and she said, no, no, I prayed all night. She comes back to him the next day. I know God wants me to give him. He said, no, I, I know that maybe you're in an emotional, he doesn't say this, but essentially the idea as he's going in the book, he says, I, I know this could be an emotional response, but he says, I want you to think about it. Some time goes by, a couple weeks go by, and this lady, man, God's working on her heart. She says, I've got to give it. So he, she finally comes to him. He says, okay, finally I'll accept it. He wasn't just there, but because he said, I want to know this is of the Lord, and I want to know it's not just an emotional reaction, but I want to know it's of God. i got to tell you, <laughs> it's been humbling. Look with me at Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. It's been on my heart and... You know, someday I see a lot of the young people in our community, in communities all around the north here. And a lot of young kids, young children, teens, without positive role models, Christian role models, without steady, sturdy parents, and needing 
some good role models. And man, it, it's been on my heart for a while. And I don't know how, but someday, if God allows us to get a bus and do a bus ministry and start reaching kids, to pray about it. See what God would do. To reach some kids that maybe have never known someone to love them. I read the story. There's a story of a book called The Girl Nobody Loved. And uh, Dory is her name. And uh, there's a subsequent book. There's two books. And uh, I think the author is Erwin Lutzer. But anyways, um, she is in foster care, and she's shuttled around for a while. And the first book doesn't go into a lot of details, but nevertheless, the parents, the foster parents she's with, they treat her very poorly. Well, in the second book, it tells you not only how, it wasn't just physical abuse, it was also of greater context in a sexual nature. And, um, but she, she noted one day that some people came knocking on her door, invited her to Sunday school, and she said, that's the first time I'd ever heard someone love me. Man, that just breaks my heart. We have a lot of young people. I'm just bearing my burden, my heart tonight. A lot of young people. I remember sitting in the hospital one day. My wife and I were there with our, I think my wife was going in for uh, ultrasound or something. I saw this mother with her daughter, and she just started yelling at this little girl. Man, this girl was seeking attention. It just tore my heart out. You realize most people come to Christ as a child. Most come to Christ as a child. Anyways, I digress. But that's on my heart, and, and if God does it, God does a work, we've got to pray, because we can't do it now, but pray what God does. And let God open doors. Verse 6 of Hebrews chapter 11, But without faith it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. You can't please God without faith i got to tell you, as we're going into this renovation project, there's a lot of faith. We have two crews that we're planning, people that are planning their summers. I still don't know how it's all going to work out, but I'm evident the Lord is in it. We haven't got all the funds yet. It's been promised. I've got to trust that God's in it. We have some. We're going to look back in faith and see what God's done. Here in Galatians, this word, pistis, or faith, must be properly regarded as the quality of faithfulness and trustworthiness because of the other fruit of the Spirit, here, all, here of all the moral qualities. You know, in, in Romans chapter 3, verses 3 through 4, this idea of faith or faithfulness, Romans 3, 3 and 4, Romans chapter 3, verse 3. For what if some did not believe? Shall their unbelief make the faith of God without, for, uh, without effect? God forbid. Yea, let God be true, but every man a liar, as is written, that thou mightest be justified in thy sayings, and mightest overcome when thou art judged. But the faith of God without effect, that there is a faithfulness, does people's unbelief make God unfaithful? And the answer to that is no. God is utterly and absolutely trustworthy. He never breaks his word. You know, it says here many times over that God, and God said in Genesis, 
uh, occur, Genesis chapter 1 occurs over and over and over again, and, and then God calls it good after every day was over in the, in the creation week. All of the laws of nature are a result of the trustworthiness and faithfulness and the expressions of the ruling authority of Almighty God. We, we depend upon the rules of nature, gravity to work. We depend on air to move. We depend on the tides to move. I mean, all of these things. We depend upon you know, moving with the sun and, and all of these things to happen. We depend upon without even thinking about it. And yet God is totally trustworthy that these features that he has set in motion will not change. Heat, light, sound, magnetism, gravity, all of these. All science is really uh, predicated upon the assumption of these laws staying consistent. That's a good thing. You know, we can count on it every day, the sun to rise and the sun to set. However you want to look at that, okay? God's moral laws are also equally fixed. You know, we find the Bible, James 1.15, when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. When man goes away from the rules that God has created, there's always problems. I was just finishing a book today. The book is called Hooked, and it deals with uh, intimacy, and uh, I'm doing it some research for uh, some of our foundation series. But anyways... Just, it, it shows over and over again in this, by neuroscience and scientific evidence and even psychological evidence of the individuals who break the boundaries that God has set, there are always negative consequences. In this book, they say the best means that God desires is abstinence and a two-parent home. That's what God's desire is. That's the best. Now, I understand sin gets in there and things happen. And I understand there's a lot of reasons. Now, we can, God, can work, God works to undo that. I, I'm not trying to be harsh or anything on that. I'm just saying that's what God established. And when society goes away from it, there's problems. In God's faithfulness, he's established things in a way that we can trust him there's natural moral boundaries. There's uh, natural laws that God has established. We can always count on them being true. And no one is more trustworthy than the Lord Jesus Christ. And he fed the 5,000. He, you know, he just, he walked across the lake. And, you know, he had control over all of this. And God was faithful. Do you realize this, that David Livingston would stake his life as he's there in Africa on the faithfulness of the Lord Jesus Christ to help him to go do the the missionary journeys that he did. In every crisis of life, wandering, tribes against him, you know, even hairbreadth away from death, he took Matthew 28, 20. Let's look with me here at the promise that Jesus made of being faithful. I'm not going to get through all the fruit tonight. I'll end on faith here. I've still got a little bit more, but... Uh, just some things as you think about. You know what? God is faithful. What does he say? He says, teaching them to observe, Matthew 28, 20, teaching them to observe all things, whatsoever I have commanded you. And then he makes a promise. And lo, I am with you always, even 
into the end of the world. Guess what? God says, I'm not going to leave you. God doesn't leave us. He's always there. There's a gentleman, Paul Little, he, some, several years ago, he was there with InterVarsity Fellowship and some organization, and um, he had a conversation with a woman about being a, you know, a principal and there in the school, and she made an agreement, I'm going to come and, and I'll be there this year. She was a professing Christian. He took her word on it and he said, we'll have you sign the contract when you get on campus. Shortly before the beginning of the semester, he receives a letter from this woman saying she'd been offered a better paying position and decided to take it, even though she'd given her word that she would come that year. She prayed about it, she said. She had peace about it, she said, and, and she left. The college principal was bitter, and I mean, he was mad. She gave me her word only to violate what she said she would do, because she said she prayed about it and had peace about it. She wasn't true to her word. She had the lack of integrity. In Psalm 15, our last verse for this evening, and then we'll come to prayer time. God is faithful. We as a Christian ought to be an individual. If, some, if we're going to make our word on it, we're going to say, I'm going to do this, I'm going to be there, fulfill it. Because not only are you violating your own character of people trusting you, you're also violating of the fruit of the Spirit. You're violating being called a child of God of one who can't be trusted. If you make a promise, you make an agreement, fulfill it. That's what God's called us to do. In Psalm 15, verse 1, Lord, who shall abide in thy tabernacle? Who shall dwell in thy holy hill? Verse 4, and whose eyes a vile person is condemned, but he honoreth them that fear the Lord, he that sweareth to his own herd and changeth not. That fear the Lord, it sweareth to his own herd and changeth not. Hey, don't go back on the promises you give to God. When you give your word, stay with it. You should be completely dependable. And in this idea of the fruit of the Spirit of faith is you're dependable. And not only are you dependable, but you have complete confidence and trust in the Lord. Just as I was talking about that there with George Mueller. If you haven't read his story or ever heard of it, I highly encourage you. Man, it will, it will get you. Man, it's, it's awesome. You can find it on Audible and other places, and you can listen to it. George Mueller, his autobiography. Man, it's, it's, it's convicting. Anyways, with these ideas of faith, we've looked at goodness tonight of a sterner sort of, try, of an ideal, an expression to get a person closer to Jesus. We looked also this evening at faith. We only got through two fruit tonight. But of faith, of trustworthiness of yourself but also of trustworthiness and, and, and dependence upon God, that God is trustworthy. And that I'm just going to live in dependence of a submission of my own will to him. You know what, the Christian life's a whole lot easier if we can get to that position and say, you know what, there's a lot of trouble going on. I don't know how it's going to work out. I'm not sure. I don't have all the plans. Can I tell you, if I was to go back a decade, 10 years ago, and some of the things, you know, with the renovations and others, I would be going crazy because I'm like, I need this and this and all these steps and all, you know. <laughs> I still don't know how it's all going to work out, but I know in God's, and I, God's leadership, God's guidance, and he's just navigating every step of the way. You know what? God is good. Keep your faith in the Lord. Don't lose heart. You know what? The goodness 
Barnabas would see the goodness in Saul, what God could do with the life. He would see what God could do with John Mark, getting the ideal, the expression of helping others get closer to God. God has called us to have that in our own lives, and I trust tonight, as you think on these truths, you know what, we can quickly get to that not very long-suffering, not very patient, and, and we lose the ability to show the goodness of God. We lose the ability to demonstrate our faith and trustworthiness of the Lord, faith. So tonight, as you think on these truths and we come to the time of invitation, I want to challenge you, however the Lord may have spoken to your heart tonight, in goodness, are you seeking for the the betterment, the ideal of another individual? What could God do in another person's life? Not where they're at, where can they go from here? And as well as faith, are you willing to trust God without reservations? That's what God called us to do. Maybe you've never put your faith and trust in Christ tonight. You're watching. You said, I've never trusted Christ as my Savior. You're trusting in your good works, trusting in something else to get you to be right with God. But you've never just, without reservation, trusted what Jesus did on that cross for the forgiveness of all your sins. Tonight, I encourage you to ask Jesus Christ, for, ask him to forgive you, because in his courtroom, you're guilty, condemned to die. And Jesus, in your place, died, so you don't have to face the eternal fires of hell. I trust tonight you bow your head and ask him to forgive you of all your sins and be your Savior. And Christian, may we demonstrate the goodness and demonstrate faith, fruit of the Spirit. With all heads bowed and eyes closed, we won't have any music played tonight, but just in the quietness of the seat where you're at, I'd encourage you just to do a work and ask God and pray and talk with him as he has spoken to your heart this evening.